Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Michael Falk, and I will be hosting today's episode, and I'm joined by Matt Gifford, the Performance Director at Ethics Sports Performance inside the new OAW Indoor Facility in New Berlin. Matt and I dive deep into athletic performance today. We talk about his philosophy of developing athletes in the weight room, why speed is so important in team sport athletes, his principles to develop speed in athletes, and lessons that athletes can take away from the weight room that apply to their on-field performance and their life outside of athletics. This is a great episode, and whether you're an athlete that is currently training for sports or someone that is interested in getting into the strength and conditioning field, you're really going to enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. My name is Michael Falk, and I will be hosting the episode today. I am joined by Matt Gifford. Matt is the Performance Director at Ethics Sports Performance inside the new OAW Indoor Facility in New Berlin. Matt is a Milwaukee area native, uh, was a star athlete at Waukesha West, where I believe he won a state championship in football, and then he was a wide receiver on the 2007 National Championship team from UW-Whitewater. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, we're probably about a year too late. I think we first connected regarding this podcast and you're doing great things with it and uh, happy to jump on board here because you are a quality person and a really awesome professional. So thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Yeah, we, you know, there's a couple of things that happened in the middle, like the world ended with the pandemic. Um, yep. you, you started a new job. There's been uh, uh, lots of change. So I'm glad uh, we're finally getting a chance to do it. So I always like, yeah, to me too. I couldn't agree more. Go ahead. I always like to start with just like a little bit of background. Um, what got you into strength and conditioning? So I am, I would say I'm a lifelong strength and conditioning fan first and foremost. Um, I was a young kid. Uh, I kind of had my first couple aha moments, you know, it started with a foot fan and, and watching Sterling Sharp, uh, as a Green Bay Packer. And just being interested in, in what those guys did to prepare for the season. Um, kind of my uh, epiphanatic moment was 1996. I think I was only about 9, 10 years old. And that was the Atlanta Olympics. And uh, Donovan Bailey and Michael Johnson both broke world records in the short sprints. And um, that was super unique for me to watch. And uh, I think the internet came um, accessible to households. So uh, I think that summer was, was when Google search sprint training, you know, uh, Michael Johnson or Donovan Bailey or Maury Screen, you know, the trending uh, in my household. And um, yeah, I would say the rest is history. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have grown up when the private industry was in its infancy and I could read about it, you know, whether it was on magazines or through uh, articles. Um, and then obviously some of the early professionals have paved their way for people like me. And um, at large from a sporting society, there's a need to be uh, in some type of sports performance transition pro for most areas in high school and collegiate athletes. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's, it's interesting that you said that. It's something I talk about a lot with our PT students, how um, early in my career, probably similar with yours, you, you know, we had to, 
it was harder to find high quality information. Um, whereas now students have access to all this, to almost too much information and they have to be so much better at like filtering down so that they don't get um, sidetracked and all on these kind of tangents of overloaded information without being able to actually use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's information like you just said is so accessible and uh, funny conversation. I just had this week with an intern. He asked, you know, who should I follow from a social media standpoint or look up, you know, Google search in the next couple of weeks. And um, I paused for a second and I, I told myself, Hey, I'm not going to give him some of the names now. If he hasn't heard of people like uh, Verkashansky or, Zatsky, some of the old famous names. He hasn't heard of Boyd Epley, hasn't heard of uh, Alvernal, uh, then we probably have a problem. And I'm not doing my job to preserve, you know, the legacy of some of the great people that have started, uh, you know, help create this to become an industry. Um, so uh, it's, I think we're all on this journey to learn, but sometimes you have to follow the source, right? And just keep tracking back. And um, it's good. Those are, those are the Historically, I guess, um, from a literature standpoint, you know, you're looking at our founding authors, the originators and uh, the deep philosophers. So um, yeah. it's important, you know, as we're kind of a yeah. new generation, guys like you and me, probably millennials, um, to still help preserve, you know, some of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, think that's that's sound advice. And uh, yeah, if you if you haven't ever gotten lost in super training, it's just you, you haven't you haven't really lived yet. <laughs> I'm still working through that book. So I've never lost time three. Yeah. I've never, never made it through it, but it, I, I open it and peruse and, and, uh, get answers and it's <laughs> source. dense. Yeah. So could you, uh, just tell us a little bit more or our listeners a little bit more about what you're doing at ethics sports performance now? Yeah. So super, super fortunate to, the opportunity to move my family out from the Glendale area to Muskego, um, ethic or, uh, our, our sponsor is orthopedic associates of Wisconsin. Um, I was given the opportunity to start a sports performance program here in this 153,000 square foot facility. Um, and we opened up on October 1st and, uh, we serve a pretty diverse community, kids as young as 10, 11 adults. Um, as I imagine, we'll probably get some adults in our next couple months Uh, from a sporting context every make and model um you know if there's a need to be able to move from a field board field sport perspective or you know whatever it might be from olympic spell um we probably would love you know get hands on on those tights um and we're also super fortunate aside from our performance training uh, working with individuals and in small groups to have the ability to train some large-scale teams as well. So not so much partnerships with some area teams that are renting space with us or just have interest in getting there to improve their athleticism or reduce their likelihood of injury. Um, so we have, uh, I want to say, three or four teams we're also servicing MVP volleyball or motion volleyball. Uh, we run through about 120 kids to our facility a couple times a week. Ethics Softball Academy. Um, you know, we're growing uh, a women's based or girl based presence in this community with some of our team training organizations here. So Academy has about 200 young ladies as a part of that program in their first year. Um, we train their kids three to four times a week. Um, and then 
area teams. It's been fun to reconnect. I was able to work with Waukesha South's basketball team, even though I was a Waukesha West High alumni, uh, but their coach, Bo Richter, is a great guy. Former teammate of mine when I was a young man. Um, so occasions like that or opportunities like that have been really, really rewarding, you know, my first four months here. And, um, you know, we offer these small groups from 6.30 a.m. till 8 p.m., Monday through Friday, and then we have Saturday morning hours as well. So um, you can find more about that, shameless plug at OW Indoor, and then look up ESP on our website. Perfect. We'll make sure we, uh, no, no shameless plug at all. We'll make sure we get it in the show notes so people can find you. Great. Um, so I just want to dive into your background a little bit. Personally, I find your experience really unique. You work with everyone from UFC fighters to professional baseball players to football players, all the way down to talented youth athletes, female athletes, like you were talking about. Um, I want to kind of ask two different questions. Um, one is, are there any kind of, we, we refer to them as like first principles or like your foundational principles that are true regardless of the age and the ability level of athletes. Um, so that'd kind of be the first part that I'd be curious in getting your perspective on. Yeah. Um, great question. So we are a movement based program first and foremost. Um, uh, so movement competency or efficiency, what have you from a terminology standpoint is super important to us. Um, if we can help with, uh, uh, being rendered an athlete's concept or idea of uh, clean movement patterns or how to perform simple things in the room um, that also probably carry over to the field or the court or, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, so for us, first big rock after we go through an assessment and look at limiting factors would be to teach patterns. You know, um, we can never assume with whomever we're working with. So as I say, you know, depending on uh, the sport, we kind of all dumbify it down to a couple, a couple simple basic things. Athletes need, be, need to bend their knees to level change or absorb force. Uh, they need to be able to extend their hips to produce force or explode a new opponent. Um, we need to either resist rotation or create rotation. So think core training at large um, and would we'll into some tasks like disassociation, right? Um, and then we able, need to be able to push-pull depending on uh, the ruggedness of that sport, let's say you're in football or rugby. Um, and then beyond that, you know, depending on energy systems as well, um, you factor into, you know, uh, the ability to resist fatigue, whatever that might be. Um, so we kind of have an all encompassing program. We're working on a lot of, you know, key biomotor abilities, but I would say the way or how we separate ourselves is we put a premium on mobility, stability, and movement competency at large. And then we really teach what we would call basic movement mechanics from a sprint or stop and start perspective. Um, so we're allowed with these small groups just to kind of work on simple details, really refine things. Um, our program is also very communication-based. So we do a lot of teaching and education is obviously the most important aspect of what we do at large. Fantastic. I think you hit on so many uh, so many good points that uh, just sound sound principles. And I think sometimes think, people think that when you work with elite um, athletes, professional players, stuff like that, that has to be more complicated. Um, my experience, that's not actually always the case. Uh, those are Those guys are the best of the best in the world. And sometimes it just needs to be simpler. Absolutely. Yeah. I think running a program where kids can make or, or athletes, you know, what have you can make connections um, across the board. 
you know, uh, there's that adage that sometimes we use you're only as good as your warm up, you know? And, uh, I think, you know, from, you know, the moment kids hit the floor with us, you know, we're teaching them obviously why pieces of our program are in place and then how that might relate, you know, whether it be from an injury standpoint, from a movement standpoint, um, today, for instance, working with a new kid, uh, young man, Tommy is a, uh, mid distance athlete at Parkside. Uh, and we talked about moving laterally in the warmup and how that's super important from a multi-planar perspective, you know, and how he is more of a linear based athlete running around a track. And sometimes he's not planes enough. And that might affect him, not just from a movement or performance standpoint, but also from an injury reduction standpoint as well. So yeah. things like that, always figuring out ways, you know, for us, uh, you know, a set or a rep to either coach things up with that specific exercise or get them to understand the why, you know, why it's there, you know, how it's going to help them. So those are the super aspects. And there's a lot of downtime, you know, in what we do between sets sometimes, you know, especially let's say we're taking adequate rest between a sprint. So um, we're always referring back and know I'm doing a good job when I can shut up and ask questions and kid, kids can give me good, simple answers, you know? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. Um, so that's kind of covers some of the similarities across all the athletes that you work with. Are there any, you know, big differences between working with professional players and, and then the, you know, youth athletes that are just getting in the, to the gym, um, the first times in terms of your approach? You know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Just saying with a youth, I'm just kind of pulling from the last couple of days here. Uh, so I had a youth program yesterday, 11 to 12 year old boys, I think from New Berlin West. And uh, we simplify things. Um, I would say there is going to be some continuity across the board and in, 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 uh, basic things, you know, teaching kids how to, you know, bend their knees and lower their hips for a squat or basic stance start for a sprint. Um, but one thing I thought about is uh, work capacity, right? Work capacity might be dictated by the athlete um, in their training or their own specific context or experience, it might be dictated by the sport. Um, but I'm find myself laughing times that I can get done with kids as young as 11 or 12. Um, because I think more so than anything, um, they're obviously really adaptable and malleable, but they're not as high, right? So I could probably do, I remember one time younger in my career, had a five minute segment with a, with a kid that was in our program, uh, for about a year, we got 25 to 10 yard accelerations with D cell stop in a five minute period. Uh, that was crazy. It was like one rep every 15 to 20 seconds. That would be catastrophic, you know, with a higher level athlete. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would say, and especially, you know, this with, with some of your work with, uh, you know, former NFL athletes and with your baseball player. Um, I think it was Heather, right. That you worked with, mm -hmm. if that sounds correct. Um, when you are searching for those fine margins, uh, in, in exploring, I guess, more chaotic environments and exploring boundaries, um, the degree of mishap is super thin. Yes. Um, so I would say. Number one, you have to be a lot more careful, you know, with your higher level athletes. There's a lot more to account for um, from a training load and stress standpoint. 
with our kids, maybe you see them one, once or twice a week, you beat them up, you know, how much they retain, not even sure, right? It's, it's sometimes just to create an environment for them. Um, so I would say, yeah, from, from level to, to level, there's going to be a big difference. Um, high school, it's behavioral, behavioral based and behavioral change at large. Um, once kids get into high school, hormonally things start to shift. They're able to handle more stress and load outputs a little higher. Um, it can be a little dangerous. And I think we, as a sporting society, right around 415 start to collectively apply more stress, you know, to kids thinking that this is the window. So, uh, you know, guy, you know, um, when you do have opportunities to collaborate or meet with another professional, that would just be one their head of a three or four headed monster. Um, so it's, I would say sometimes, or, you know, oftentimes always challenging to have to run a program where I only work with kids one to four days a week, depending on that specific person or that athlete. Um, and then I have to share. And sometimes I have no idea what's going on from a sport or load or stress perspective away from my, my doors. Um, so it becomes difficult and you try to develop a system based on principles, but also based on appropriate load and, and minimizing or moderating dose effectively. Um, so we're not picking kids. Uh, and then that comes back to them. It's always harping on them, you know, take care of the back end, take care of your diet, take care of your, you know, sleep and your recovery from that standpoint, start to do some of the things here at home. Uh, so consistency is always king. And I have yet to meet an individual or person, you know, including looking at myself in the mirror that can't be more consistent in some way, shape or form with some facet of uh, their repertoire game. Yeah, no, I know. I think you had some really good points there. Um, I think how you phrase that with the high school kids is perfect. I mean, we deal with it with um, like athletes coming back from injury, say an ACL injury, and they're going to go back to their first AAU basketball tournament. And you know, they're like, well, how many games can I, how many minutes of how many games can I play three days in a row? And it's like, you know, this is a horrible idea. We'd never let a professional basketball player go back and play three games in a day, three days in a row in one tournament, their first time back. Like, but that's what we expect these high school kids to be able to do because that's how the system's set up. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, we might, I guess, loosely call it a broken system at times. Um, and I think we all have to take personal responsibility either to learn more or to develop a network that, you know, where you can refer out or you can trust the opinion or the expertise of somebody else and, um, not to toot your own horn. That's what makes you so unique. And, and, uh, it's why I appreciate, um, is you're a PT, you're a PT first and foremost, but you're also somebody interested in strength conditioning. You understand the value in that. And, um, I, so I think when, we did more holistic, broad-based or lateralized approach to our thinking, to the dis- different systems and disciplines that all have to interact with athlete health and wellness. It's super important. Um, and, you know, stories that come to mind, I had a man in a back race, you know, throughout an entire summer and he was not cleared to work me uh, or he was not cleared to sprint or do any dynamic explosive activity with me uh, per doctor, um, but he was allowed to play. He was allowed to play baseball and hit and sprint around the bases. So, you know, before he ever was able to touch his foot down on the ground and me, he tweaked the string, run bases at a baseball game. So sometimes it's mind boggling, uh, you know, and 
you see you, the big thing is you see system flaws, right? And I think specifically with that situation, you know, kids are cleared, but they haven't regained the work capacity or they haven't spent time stabilizing, you know, certain acts or certain qualities. Um, and then like we know, it's crazy to think uh, of practice um, as a state that's not arousal creating. You know, we always think of games, I think, as, oh, all right, if you can handle, uh, you know, you can handle things we're doing in PT or some of the stuff we're peeling back and bleeding in through with strength and conditioning. Yeah, get a couple practices into you and then, you know, maybe you're ready a week or two in a game. Well, that practice in and of itself, that kid. They might be so hyped up to put their foot back down on the turf and play with their t- or practice teammates. So um, I think it's it's uh, obviously fine-tuning things. Um, also, taking a more practical, common-sense approach to certain things, you know. And I think that's where oftentimes, you know, what we're running into is, is just, hey, it's, it's the way it's always done. Um, this is common. And common doesn't always make sense. Yeah. No, no. I, uh, I agree with you. And I, I won't even go down that tangent because if we start talking, you get me talking about what clear to play means, um, we'll be here for two hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so in our area, um, if I asked somebody about Matt Gifford, the people that when I first moved back and opened our clinic, everyone was like, oh, you got to go talk to Matt. And they say two things. He's a just great human being, one of the nicest people you'll meet. And, a, and he's the speed guy. Right. So that's, that's sort of your, uh, ah. your reputation in our area as, uh, that you're yeah. the guy to go to if you want to get faster. Um, so why is speed so important in team sports? Well, I, you know, would always refer to it as king or queen. So you can't show me a sport. You can't, you know, let me sit down and watch. And, um, I would say I wanted to just, if you take it on the grid, but the great separator of speed, you just see it, you know, the best athletes in the world pulling away from their opponents on the football field, turning a double into a triple, the baseball diamond, um, simple things like that, that are involved, obviously in sport, right? We can watch it it's entertaining. Um, but I think the other unique thing is, you know, not only did I, I just had that aha passion for understood it was important for me as a young man playing wide receiver. Um, but I think as I've kind of hung my, hung my hat around this one training principle, I've realized um, an athlete that sprints faster is usually going to have, uh, that's going to have effects on everything else athletically. You know, um, it just heightens the nervous system at large. So I want to use this word judiciously, but I often think of it as a steroid of the system, right? Um, so uh, exposure there can help an athlete jump higher. It may help with you both weight forcefully. Um, and then, you know, if, if from a locomotive standpoint, if you really break down, you know, uh, co-contractions, relaxing, contracting, you know, create stiffness, uh, fluidity, synchronization, right? Some important concepts, rhythm, all that stuff, right? If we think about uh, movement at large, whether it be a ballerina or whether it be uh, somebody playing pickleball or racquetball, you know, uh, apply correctly those things to help those things are a part of sport every single day you know so um i think believe uh speed to be the most important thing an athlete can train um and with that being said 
it's not necessarily a means to an end. Uh, there are definitely things in, our, in my program. Uh, take, for instance, Tommy, this kid working with me today. Um, as we initiated the warm up, I said, hey, everything we do from the mobility work, the stability work um, in this warm up or some of the sprint prep drills we're going to do, it's going to affect how you move, how you sprint, how you might have carryover from an output standpoint towards your 800, 400. Um, so ki- getting kids to buy into uh, that, you know, a program, what it means to be holistic is, is it means it's like an ecosystem. Everything is enriching everything else, right? So um, for me, speed, yeah, it's a great separator, uh, but I think it helps out. I've noticed anecdotally, if I can get a pitcher faster, it has carryover to their uh, throwing speed um, and also might have carryover from energy systems to them recovering as well. Yeah. I, I agree with you. There's just so many biomotor abilities that go into being fast that, um, yeah, it's not everything, but you want to look at risk injury, risk reduction. Sprinting is a key component of hamstring strain in, in injury prevention. Um, you just keep going down the line and there's so many positive benefits, uh, to getting faster. Um, you know, I, uh, I used to run, I think one of my first website wise is just my own little blog, a blog spot. And I remember this is probably eight, nine years ago researching, uh, I think it was, if I'm going to pronounce the name correctly, it was Hatfield, Ricky Hatfield, former, uh, boxer. And, uh, he, I can't remember what governing body or what athletic institution is punching speed. And I think he created about 750 to 800 pounds of force when he hit, um, his fist hit somebody else's body. And uh, when you look at the force created from the foot through the floor, through the ground, it's a thousand pound loss of pressure. So that is insane. And, but that aha moment for me when I was training MMA guys was, Hey, get these guys faster. Right. And there could be some transfer or carryover from a nervous system point. Wouldn't this help increase that punching speed? You know, might this not help them be able to get off a punch or a kick? Um, Might it not help them from an efficiency standpoint? Uh, survive, you know, a five round or three round fight, whatever it might be. Yeah, no, I, um, I agree. I think it's, I think it's great. Um, I mean, I know that getting faster is a complicated topic, but if you could just kind of lay out a little bit of when you athlete comes in, they've got a goal to get faster, run a specific, you know, 60 time or 40 time, whatever, uh, what goes into that? Cause I think some people think it's as simple as like, you know, just go to the gym and run and you're going to get faster. And, um, yeah, that's like a component, but there's more to it than that. So how do you approach getting someone actually? Yeah. Well, so I think sometimes we dummy it down, right. We say, Hey, all these sprint drills just got to sprint, you know, do the real thing. And, uh, while you certainly do need to sprint, um, number one, we have to figure out what their limiting factors might be. Um, with that, I think, uh, we also have to figure out what their strengths are, right? So we think of, I guess, I'm not going to probably botch this, but I'm not a huge Bernstein fan, but remember that quote, uh, sport is a problem-solving activity. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking for the problems or we're looking for how an athlete might create solutions to something they're doing. Uh, and then you you look at use first principles. And, and I think you spoke of big rocks earlier. You know, there are certain things or attractors to uh, becoming or being a fast athlete, right? You're just going to spend less time on the ground. It's going to spend less time 
moving back behind you. We're trying to optimize hip position and horizontal and vertical forces. Um, so the big thing with kids, no matter what their age is, I just want to watch them sprint, you know, with the initial assessment. I might take a couple screenshots and just make some notes, you know, with the eye test, pen and paper. Um, we could certainly break things down. A kinogram stand or takes screenshots and time of how they're touching down off the ground or how their foot's landing, how they're projecting. Um, but first and foremost, I just want to watch them run and move. Um, we also notice, I think, you know, when assessing their strengths, I think it's important to have an understanding of where they've come from, from a sporting perspective or from a training perspective. Um, so what are the things they work on? Classically, when we work with, I think, uh, football kids or American football kids, usually going to be shirts. They're usually going to be um, more chaotic from an acceleration standpoint, and they will have a ton of trouble transitioning into upright vertical max velocity position. Um, so uh, the big thing for us is figure out uh, strengths, figure out, you know, how they problem solve when they want to go from a static position or from a, you know, simple movement based position to top speed. Um, and then figure out, you know, uh, other, I guess, supportive things, you know, that might be strengths vertically, you could do an RSI test with kids. Um, but I think we're also taking some of those marks as we explore the first couple of training weeks with them as well. Um, so once we kind of get intake, I think you spend the first couple of sessions just, uh, figuring out, Hey, is this going to be more of a technical or mechanical issue with these kids? Uh, and then first, and then first and foremost, beyond those two, once we can kind of decipher the issue, there's what's their basic concept of the technical model. You know, do they even know what a good sprint should look like? They don't, do they know what a good sprint should feel like? And I think most oftentimes they don't, right. They have no clear picture, no example. Um, so my first week is just, uh, first day, more importantly, usually is just beginning with the end in mind, teaching kids how upright should feel, and then using that as the basis to move forward with their acceleration work as well. Um, and that takes a lot of time. So it really depends on the kid and the person. Um, again, if there's, if there's limiting factors that, that might be mechanical, maybe they lack strength in a certain area, they're having trouble from a mobility or movement standpoint, well, I need to let them know that, hey, that's why we got to work on these things pre-sprint, right? And then that's why from a behavioral standpoint, you got to do some at-home things because yeah. we're not going to be able to get done in four weeks with one or two sessions a week just with me. Yeah. So it's getting the buy-in and it's always nice to, uh, video feedback is nice with them, but it's always nice to give them an elite level model, pull up your phone, show them a video of somebody brilliant, you know, and uh, I think that kind of lights their eyes up. Um, but it's always referring back. It's always getting them to make the connections, um, exploring boundaries with certain variabilities, but it's not as basic things. They have a hard time holding pelvic position, right? If they're having a full time doing that from a sprint perspective, what well, we need to start doing stuff from a weight room or mobility or um, strength-based standpoint to help them, to give them a fighting chance. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I mean, my one of my philosophies and what we kind of preach is, like complex understanding for simple solutions, you know, and yeah, like being able from your perspective, from my perspective, what we do, you know, we spend a lot of time diving into like, what exactly is your issue? We might spend 90 minutes getting down to like, 
you need to get your quad stronger <laughs> or you need to get yeah. your, you, know, you need to be able to hold this position better, whatever the case may be. But when you can actually get down to like those limiting factors and it lets you make progress because you're not like randomly guessing and like just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you go back and forth, right? So I think the way I think the speed bay community is working as we're starting to, um, I think be, be a little more vigilant with trying to scientifically quantify athlete strengths, right? So you might take, um, some of the new speed data and look at, okay, how is this athlete applying force? When is there a rate of the minute return on some of the horizontal force, right? Some of these new, uh, apps that we can pull up, right. JB Marin type apps. Um, the biggest thing, if there is a, if there is an issue and maybe we need to identify just like with a, uh, jump or some type jump testing protocol, how do we pinpoint, uh, that let me factor that issue, but then reintegrate some of those things onto a normal training cycle, right? So let's say we, we, we figure out on a force plate kid is eccentrically weak. Well, does that mean all of a sudden the next four to six, weeks, all we do is eccentric work. We abandon everything else from a strength standpoint. Do we just do eccentric work with that athlete for the rest of his lifeline? Um, and that takes time and I don't have an answer for you for yes or no, you know, along those lines. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, did you have any particularly like mentors as you kind of got into, um, your philosophy on speed development that have really impacted how you've gone about it over the years? Yeah, uh, definitely. So, um, I would say I, I grew up as a Google kid and, uh, you'll probably laugh at this. Um, I was always the guy chasing the world record. So when, when Donovan Bailey broke the world record, I think that survived for three years, but the next year in uh, 2000 or 1997, I think it was Maurice Green came on the international track stage. And uh, so he was the hot guy. He, he must have the best program because he broke or he beat Donovan Bailey. So um, I spent a lot of time looking up his sprint coach. His name was Jonathan. And uh, I think if I'm correct, John Smith, and this might even uh, be a, some of our listeners has, um, was a Bud Winters guy, one of the founding fathers of sprint training in America um, years back. And uh, so John Smith's stuff would always try to uh, hoard out in some of his material. And uh, he coached two athletes. Um, I loved his then mentality. And he was also the the coach coined the dry phase, right? Keeping an athlete's head down to replicate uh, or to, to help them come out of the blocks and transition from an acceleration standpoint to max velocity. And lo and behold, that cue probably hurt a lot of people as much as it helps a lot of people. Um, you know, through research um, or through Google, I should say, that led me down different paths. Um, I was lucky enough to, right around that time frame, to pick up sports speed this book uh that was popular in the late 90s that it's always funny to come straight and say i had that too but um that was co-written by tom Teles, who's probably again one of the founding fathers one of the, the greatest i would say track and field sprint coaches of all time um and uh Teles coached dan paff who's probably one of the premier names now it's been a premier name for the last 30 years uh, coach donovan bailey when he broke that world record so i've always looked up to those guys um, 
there are so many names out there. Stu McMillan, obviously big name now. When I was a young guy, Martin Rooney was uh, the combine pro day guy on on uh, all the DVDs that I used to buy. So he was somebody I idolized as well. Yeah. Um, and hard now, to believe, it's hard to believe there's going to be a, a generation of you know strength coaches that didn't ever watch a home DVD continuing ed series. Oh my god, yeah, pretty crazy. Um, yeah, it's, it's honestly how far this industry's come in the last 15, 15 to 20 years. And I'm still, you know, probably pretty young in the industry. I'm 14, 13, 14 years in. And, uh, but how different it is, you know, when, when we were starting out, Michael, there was no Instagram or Twitter and yeah, you'd either get a blue NSD book that would come out or CSCS every, every month. If you scrub, subscribe to it, my older brother days to steal it from him. Um, or you maybe fell upon Google or you to go to perform better lectures, things of that nature. Um, and now you can look all that stuff up online and you know, it's right at your fingertips. So I would say, um, it's weird. So at large, I think professionals now at a younger age are more knowledgeable, um, across the board, you know, uh, they obviously lack experience being young in the game and from a wisdom standpoint, I don't know, you know, uh, who am I to judge that? Um, but it's, it's different. It's, it's this ever evolving industry, you know, they're changing so fast. And, um, if you're a copycat type, uh, young co it's easier now than it was before, you know, um, find out who the greats are and, and like them and, you know, that'll push you forward. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other things I know we're going to run out of time here soon, but, um, one of the things that stuck with me from our initial conversation is just uh, how much, how you view the weight room as so much more than just enhancing speed, strength, power. Um, what are some other lessons that you think athletes can take out of the weight room and the training process kind of going forward to impact them on the field, but then just, you know, as human beings and in life? Yeah. I mean, I would say first and foremost, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always how well you do something in the weight room. That's what it comes down to. And uh, we talked about consistency earlier, um, but intent has to be there with everything you're doing. You'd be amazed how many times I count reps and kids shortchange themselves, you know, or how many times I say you've got a 30 second stretch and it's in seconds. So, you know, I, th I think uh, awareness, intent, the most important aspects that an athlete can bring, you know, they have to bring them themselves, you know, to the weight room when they're working on certain things. Um, they have to be the type that want feedback, you know, true seekers, right? Uh, they have to be honest with themselves. And uh, paraphrase a dominant Cruz and MMA athletes uh, quote, you know, um, you'll never reach your potential unless you can be brutally honest with yourself. So it starts with honesty. Um, it starts with, you know, the idea of compounding interest. The little things I'm doing today are going to pay off in the end. Um, so diligence is obviously super, super. And then from a weight room perspective, I would say, you know, kids to understand it's what we try to accomplish every single uh, day here with every single session. It's always about how well you move, how well you move weight, how well you move your body with or without weight. Um, and then when it does come to moving heavier weight, it's about how fast and proficient or efficient you can as well. So, uh, you know, the athletes that aren't working with me, uh, you know, that sometimes I'll, I'll 
some great things done on, on a Twitter post. And sometimes it's just like, Hey man, we are bastardizing certain things because we are focusing on load first or we're focusing on big numbers. Um, and that even goes for speed. You know, if you run a flying 10, that's super, super fast, but it almost looks catastrophic to the eye. That's probably going to bite you in the rear eventually. So, um, I would say, be honest with yourselves, uh, become super efficient and then be grateful for every opportunity. Um, you know, the people that, that survive, uh, or thrive, I should say in, in any industry, any field in life, uh, the people that are most impactful on others are usually really grateful people. Right. Um, and that exudes out of them and that also spreads to others. So, um, if you can have those qualities, you can, you can be one of those athletes that doesn't have to be vocal, but, uh, just from your presence, just from, um, that mentality, that, that grateful mentality by using these opportunities will really define you, separate you and help you reach your full potential. Yeah. I think, uh, so much good stuff in there for, uh, for kids to listen to and take away and, and bring that attitude and, and total development into the weight room and not just focus on, um, getting stronger and faster, but also just learning things that are going to carry you a long way in sports. Yeah. Application is everything. So if you can't apply it back home on your own, um, you're doing no good and guys like me aren't doing any good for you either. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Matt, I know you got to get out of here, so I won't uh, take any more of your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you gave us the website, which we will add to the show notes, um, but where else can people learn more about you and what you're doing at Ethic Online? Um, yep. Yeah, besides OEW Indoor, uh, you could probably follow our Instagram page. It's Ethic Sports Performance. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me on Instagram or some social media avenue, we, uh, coach GIF or, uh, my hashtag, my, my Twitter handle is GIF us strength. So, um, yeah, otherwise, uh, pop in. So absolutely. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Matt. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you guys on the next episode.